Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Pastor Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Rocky Peak, and uh, just, just glad you're here, especially if you're brand new. Uh, this week, I sent out a uh, ministry update a date uh, letter. How many of you got that on your email? Did you get that? Let me see your hands. Okay. Uh, if you didn't get it, I want to make sure you pick up. We have some hard copies available for you. At our, I think there are a resource window out in our lobby. You can pick those up uh, and uh, catch up. It, it kind of just brings you up to speed on a lot of things going on at the church, uh, Christmas stuff, uh, uh, the movement update, uh, essentials class coming up, uh, Ethiopia report, just a lot of things. But one of the things I want to uh, call your attention to, make sure you read, is uh, about kind of a, a big challenge we're facing uh, in our, as a church going into de- uh, December, and it's in the area of our finances. Uh, you know, the first eight months of the year, when you're going through December, I'm mean, through August, uh, we were doing pretty well in spite of the economy and so on. We are about 5% below projections, but we were able to cut costs, and we were pretty much on, on track. But uh, going into the fall, normally what churches experience is in the fall, uh, giving jumps up because people are back from summer vacations. But this year, instead of ours jumping up like it typically does, it actually took a dive. And uh, so this fall, we've actually been almost uh, 20% below uh, budget uh, for the uh, September, October, and November, which has left us uh, in a bad spot going to December about $360,000 behind where we would normally be going in December, which means that to uh, break even for the month, we need to bring in about, I think it's $950,000 in uh, December, which is um, a couple couple hundred thousand more than last year, like 100,000 more than the year before, about the same as the year before that. And so um, so it's, it's a big number. And so um, here's what I want to do. Um, if you haven't been listening to this announcement so far, uh, pay attention right now, okay? Okay. Uh, Number one, uh, first of all, if Rocky Peak is your church home, this is, this is where God meets you and this is your, your place, uh, number one, I'd ask you to join me in prayer that um, every day this month, I know in my own life I'm making a matter of prayer, that God would just uh, supernaturally provide for us as he's done so many times in the past. And so I'm asking you to covenant with me, yes, I'll pray with you uh, that God will meet this need. Secondly, I'm asking that for all of us who call Rocky Peak our home, that we would simply go before the Lord this year and ask him what he wants us to do to help meet this need. Uh, my, my, my guess is I know some of us are out of work or underemployed right now, and that's, one of the, that's why the, it's the economy that's kind of impacting us so much. And so some of us won't be able to do more, but there's others of us that, that will and should, and that God's going to uh, kind of tap on the shoulder. I know for Lynn and I, as I've been praying about it, I feel like he's already given me the number that this is kind of, this is the amount Lynn and I are supposed to give above and beyond what we normally give to uh, help meet the need. And so I just ask that you would, you'd go before God and, and ask. Uh, part of unleashing a movement of passionate Christ followers, which is our vision here, is uh, serving sacrificially, which takes in our resources. And so I just want to challenge you with that. Uh, God's put a big challenge in front of us, and so uh, we're going to see how we respond to that, okay? Um, so we're going to go into our time of teaching now. Y'all ready to go? Yeah. Again, I'm looking forward to this. Let's. Uh, oh, by the way, if you're if you're brand new, I think I don't know if I mentioned this because all the services run together in my mind. But um, inside of your program is a white message note sheet, and so if you're brand new here, you won't know that. You want to pull that out to help you follow uh, through this time of teaching. Let's uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing in our church. And God, as we we come before you at this end of the year, we just do pray that you'd meet this financial need we have. But God, most of all, we're just excited about what you're doing, the way you're waking us up, calling us on, um, doing a new work in our lives, teaching us what it means to be passionate Christ followers. And 
And so, Lord, we, we know that today is the next step in that journey. I just pray for great freedom and strength as I share. God, may the word be clear. I pray that as a church, we would listen deeply to what you want to say to us today as the next step in our journey. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our story starts today um, north of Jerusalem, about 12 miles. It's, uh, it's a little town called Ephraim, and that's where he's hiding out. And uh, on that particular day, I'm not sure what time of day it was, but but the messenger came. The messenger had bad news. Um, the message was that one of his close friends, a man he loved very much, was, was very sick. He was dying. And, uh, and so the messenger came and waited for the reply. It turns out that this man who was sick, he was actually one of three kids in his family, grown kids. He had two sisters. And when he first became sick, his uh, sisters weren't too concerned, probably the flu or something, you know, no big deal. But as time went on, he, he, he was getting obviously sicker and sicker. They began to realize he's in danger and dying. So the first, first person they thought of was their friend. I mean, he'd, they'd seen him heal so many, just with, with a word, with a touch, that they'd seen him heal even from a great distance just by speaking the word. And so the only logical thing to do, the natural thing to do, is to call in a messenger and to send him off with a message. And the message was very simple. The message they sent was, the one that you love is sick. Today we're, uh, we're continuing this series, and for those of you who are brand new, I, I not only want to welcome you, but also want to quickly bring you up to speed. Um, you can see on the walls, the series is called Revealed. This is a, it's a study of the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest friends and, and followers, a man by the name of John. He later wrote a life, uh, kind of a story, the life and teaching of Jesus. We call it the Gospel of John. It's in our New Testament. And so we're, we're studying that, that story, and uh, we're actually in the second mini-series in Revealed. It's called Conflict and Crisis. You can see at the front of your note sheet, chapter 5 through 12. Today we come to chapter 11, and it's one of the most famous stories uh, in the life of Jesus. It, uh, the scene is a, a small town two miles to the east of Jerusalem called uh, Bethany. And, uh, and so if you have your Bibles, and turn to uh, John chapter 11, we're going to dive in. John chapter 11, now there was a man named uh, Lazarus was sick and he was from Bethany, this little, this little village right outside of Jerusalem, two miles, and it's the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And so there's three kids in this family, three grown kids. Lazarus uh, had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus is the one who's sick. And so Mary, whose brother Lazarus was now lay sick, she was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, we haven't heard this story yet. It actually doesn't come until next week. Chapter 12, we'll get there. But it was a famous story in the life of the early church, and so John's writing this. He's like, you, you know the one I've told you before about this. It's, it's, it's his, uh, his, uh, her, her brother. And so uh, the sisters, they sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you, uh, you love is sick. And so you catch this. They're all three very close to Jesus. Um, their, their brother gets sick. Uh, we don't know what the sickness was. We don't know how long it's gone on. My guess is like most sicknesses, it comes on kind of slowly. You know, and, and, and over time, you begin to realize that, hey, this is serious. 
And so once they realize it's serious, their thoughts go to their friend. I mean, they've seen them heal uh, the, the sick so many times. And so they're in desperate, they're desperate straits. They didn't know what to do. The doctors, I'm sure, couldn't help. And so they, they, they call in a messenger. They send him off. Now, we don't know how long it took for the messenger to get there. This was the day before telephone, right? We don't, we don't have iPhones. We don't have a droids. You don't have a Jesus app, you know, that kind of tells you where Jesus is, GPSing all over. Um, and so, hey, today he's in the city of Ephraim. Great, awesome, let's go get him. Um, so they send a messenger out looking for Jesus, maybe not knowing where he is, but, but finally he gets there, and when he gets there, uh, they, you know, he just has a simple message. The one you love is sick. Uh, he, he, they knew he'd know exactly who he was talking about. They're very close. Now, the interesting thing was is that Jesus doesn't respond like you'd think he would. Um, I think, I'm sure what they expect is they're all very close. They, they love one another. Uh, Lazarus, his close friend, is sick. And so they send this message. And what they're expecting is, is he's going to drop everything and travel south the 12 miles. I mean, it's only a day away. Come down and, and heal him. Or at the least, that he will uh, speak a word of healing and heal from distance like he's often done. So I'm sure that's what they're expecting. It's a crisis in their life. And he's a close friend and he's got the ability, so why wouldn't he do that? And that's not how Jesus responds, though. In verse 4, it says, when he heard this, uh, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. He's not going to die. Uh, no, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So, so he's not going to end up dying through this. Um, it's, God's going to use this to kind of show who I, I am. And so you can imagine them getting the message back. Um, that, that, you know, they're, they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. The messenger comes, hey, is Jesus coming? No, he's not coming. Well, what did he say? He said he's, he's not going to die. He says it's not going to end in death. And it's like, well, okay, you know, I, I guess. And they're kind of confusing. And then their brother dies. Have you ever been there? <laughs> It's like, uh, I thought I understood what you meant, Lord, you know, and, uh, and their brother died. Then we're not sure exactly when he died. Did he die when the messenger was on the way to Jesus? Did he die on the way back to Jesus? Did he die a couple of days later? You know, we, we don't really know exactly, but we know he's going to die. And so in verse 5, uh, John gives us some background. This is an important part of this story is the close relationship between Jesus and these three brothers and sisters they said um, that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, very close. Um, yet, in spite of that love, uh, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. So he just says, hey, it's not going to end in death. And uh, the messenger leaves, probably perplexed. His men are like, well, whatever, you know, his, his men are whatever. And then two days later, uh, Jesus turns to his men. He says, hey, let's go back to Judea. Now, Judea is where Jerusalem and Bethany is. It's in the south. And so they're thinking, this doesn't sound like a very good idea. Because the, remember, remember at the end of chapter 10 last week, that at, at the end of chapter 10 last week, the religious leaders were ready to stone Jesus uh, because he had claimed to be God. And so it's very dangerous. This is why he's hiding out 12 miles north. And so they're like, oh, I don't think this is a good idea. So he says, verse 7, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you want to go back there? Are you sure? And uh, Jesus says, well, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Like every day is roughly 12 hours, unless you live in Alaska at the end of the year. And uh, he says, and a man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. Notice you walk in the day, you're, you're good. 
but it's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And sort of Jesus' way of saying, hey, I know the darkness is coming. I, I know my death is coming, but uh, it's not yet. It's still daylight. It might be late in the day, but I'm still safe. And so his disciples, uh, and so after he said this, verse 11, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus, he's fallen asleep, but I'm going to go and wake him up. That's why I want to go south. I want to wake him up. And they're like, huh? Um, so his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, I'm sure he'll get better. You know, you don't need to go wake him up. And, but Jesus had been speaking of his death, and his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Something special is going to happen, but let's go to him. So they're just totally confused, right? He had said this will not end in death. Now he waits two days. Then the guy dies. They think he's talking about sleep. It's, the whole thing's confusing. And like the disciples, they often have a clue what Jesus is up to. And so what they say is Thomas, who's called Didymus, which means twin, and Thomas means twin, so twin, who's called twin, said to the rest of the disciples, um, hey, let's just go that we may die with him. You know, like I don't get it. He's going down. He's probably going to get himself killed. Don't want him to die alone. It's going to be a rumble. Let's go. Let's go rumble with him, you know. So they're just really lost. So verse 17, so on his arrival, he gets to Bethany. Jesus finds out that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Okay, so we need to understand a little bit about tombs and a little about burial, if it make the story make sense. Um, in Israel at the time, Israel didn't embalm people like Egyptians did. They, they didn't embalm people. And so once someone died, they began to decompose rapidly. And so what would happen is they would bury people the same day that they died. Uh, they, they would wash the body, clean it up, put spices on it because it's going to begin to get bloated. It's going to begin to decompose. It's going to begin to smell. And so you're going to put some spices on it to kind of cover that smell. You're going to wrap it up in strips of linen. And then you're going to put it in a tomb. A tomb would be uh, usually a cave or it was uh, cut into the side of a rock hillside. Uh, about 10 to 15 square feet, so small. At the back of the cave, there would be, they would uh, carve out uh, kind of a, 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 kind of a like bed level. They would carve out uh, a small platform in the rock, the coal platform, where you would lay the body. So you put the body in there, and then you plug up the tomb. The way, you, the way you seal it up is you bring a big boulder, like a big cork, and you put it in the front to, to block it. Or in a fancier tomb, sometimes they would cut out these big rocks, and they were like a huge checker. So imagine a rock, I've seen them, they're about like, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can see this, a big, uh, uh, maybe it's about this big, a stone, maybe a foot wide, um, and they would chisel this thing out, so it'd be like a big checker, and they would cut um, kind of a, a strip uh, in front of the, the tomb, uh, kind of a channel there, to where you could just roll this huge stone in front of the opening and seal it, so that's how it would work. And then what would happen is you'd put someone in the tomb, and of course they would begin to de decompose immediately, and they would come back about a year later, and they would take the bones out, they put it in a box called an ossuary, and then that's where they would store this. In fact, I don't know if you, you heard, but a couple years ago, if I remember right, it's off the top of my head, but uh, they, they found the ossuary of Caiaphas, the high priest, who actually shows up in this story. And so, um, so that's what they do. So you basically, it's like rent a tomb. You know, like you rent it for a year, basically, and it was kind of, um, it, was, it was very energy efficient, uh, green technology. So you just kind of, you just kind of recycle 
recycle the tomb. You know, so you buy it for a year, you get the bones out, you can put someone else in, and that way it need less tombs around. And so anyway, that's how it works. So Jesus comes in verse 17 on his arrival, he finds that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. So catch this, the body is decomposing, the skin's coming off, the, uh, the cells are breaking down. Uh, it's, it's bloated, uh, the, the, the flesh is starting to come off the bone. That's, that's what it's important to understand for the story. And so Bethany, he said, was, the city was less than two miles from Jerusalem. It's right outside in the eastern, eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And so um, many Jews had come to, to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brothers. In Jewish culture, you'd have a seven-day funeral, essentially. And so they'd come out, it was during that first week, and when Martha hears that Jesus is in town, she goes out to meet him, but Mary somehow she doesn't hear, so she stays at home. And so Lord, um, Martha, when she gets to Jesus, she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I want you to catch this. Let's rewind. You send the messenger to your good friend that you know loves you and has the ability to heal either on sight or from a distance. Messenger comes back, he's not coming. This will not end in death, and your brother's died. Are you with me on this? Like, I think there's a lot in this statement. If you'd been, if you, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I think it's more than a simple statement. I think it's a question. Where, where you been? What's up? What's going on? But, you know, it's Jesus, and so you don't just say, what's up? So what you say is, uh, if you've been here, life wouldn't have turned out. Have you ever been there in your own life? Uh, God, if you'd been here, uh, my life wouldn't have gone this way. I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. Why didn't you show up? Where you been? Have you been there? Yeah, I think we probably all have. So anyway, so, so she says in verse 22, but, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And we're not really sure what she's saying. It sounds like she's saying, hey, what, you could still raise him from the dead. I mean, this had happened in the Old Testament, like Elisha had been raised a boy from the dead and all. It may be what she's asking, but as we go on in this story, it doesn't seem like that's what she's asking because of something she says later. But anyway, so Jesus says to her, yeah, your brother's gonna rise again. In other words, I'm gonna raise him up. Right here, right now, that's what he's saying. I'm gonna, he's gonna rise again. Of course, she has no context for that. And so she says, well, I know he'll rise again on the resurrection at the last day. Now, most Jews at this time, not all Jews, but most Jews believe that at the end of time there would be a resurrection some, sometime. And, and either all the dead would rise or the righteous dead would rise. And so she says, yeah, I know that someday uh, it's gonna happen, the resurrection at the end of time is gonna happen, I know he's gonna rise. And he says, no, he says, uh, Mary, or Martha, says, I am, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. This is a fifth I am statement in, in John. Here's what I want you to catch. What he's saying is, no, you know, this is how we often think of it. They'll, they'll come into the end of time. They'll come someday. It's on some celestial calendar some way. God, God knows where it is. That someday is going to happen. There's going to be a resurrection. It's going to be the end of time, right? That's how we think of it. And Jesus is saying, no, the resurrection isn't a impersonal date on a calendar. The resurrection's a person. The race is gonna come back to life when I call them back. See, I'm, I'm Lord of the cosmos, Jesus is saying. 
And when, I sp- when the time comes and I want to bring the human race back, I will bring the human race back. It's not this impersonal event. It's, it's like I'm the one that's going to speak and I'm going to call the universe back. You see? I am the resurrection. I am the life. And then he goes on. And he says, uh, he who believes in me will live. Remember, in John, to believe in him means to, to buy into him, to follow him. He's your Lord. He's your leader. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Like this life is not the end. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He might physically might die, but he'll never die. He just steps into the next life. And do you believe this? And so she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the Messiah. You're the Son of God who is to come in the world. And so they have their moment there. And now Jesus is concerned for the other sister, for Mary. She's still back at the house, and so he's going to send Martha back to get her. And so in verse uh, 28, he said, after he said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside in the house, and she says, the teacher's here. He's, he's asking for you. He sent me back to get you. And so when Mary hears this, she gets up quickly, and she, she went to him. And Jesus had not yet entered the village. He's still outside of town, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, when they noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And so when Mary reaches the place where Jesus was and she sees him, notice she just falls apart. And she falls at his feet. We're going to learn. She starts sobbing. We're going to see it in a second. And so she's been holding it together. And you know what's gone on these last four days ever since the brother died. Behind closed doors, she and her sister are like, I don't get it. Why didn't he come? If he would have come, this wouldn't have happened. He said he wasn't unto death. He's, de- he's dead. For four days, they've been asking this question behind closed doors. And so now when he comes, it's the first thing out of her mouth. She says the exact same thing her sister said, and I think with the exact same questions. And she is sobbing, laying in the dirt at his feet, sobbing. And she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. What's up? Verse 33, and so Jesus, he sees her weeping. And, and these Jews, by the way, in, in the Greek, that word weeping, it's, it's like a, it's a crying out. It's a sobbing. It's a strong word. It's not like a few tears. And so he sees her sobbing there. And he sees the Jews, 33, who had come along with her. They're also weeping. He's deeply moved in spirit. The whole scene just captures him. And he says, where have you laid him? He wants to get to work. Where's the tomb? And they say, well, come and see. And he just breaks down and he begins to sob. And I want you to catch this same Greek word. Jesus begins to sob. He's with her. Like, have you ever been at a point in your life where you're going through great pain and you've called on Jesus to come and he's not come. (laughs) And when he comes, it's too late. And you're sobbing. And we wonder, how does he feel about that? What we learn from this is he sobs with us. (laughs) Remember what we learned in the Gospel of John, that Jesus has come to reveal who God is. Well, here's an amazing picture of a God who weeps with us. we, We live in a broken world, don't we? We live in a fallen world. This is not the way it was supposed to be, and bad things happen. And what we learn is that when, how does God feel about that? How does he feel when you call, and you call out to him, and he doesn't seem to come, and it makes no sense? How does he feel? He's weeping with you. That's what we see 
It's kind of funny because in a way, he knows in a few minutes he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And it doesn't stop him from entering into pain. I, I remember when our, our girls were young, and you, know, you take them to the doctor for their first shots. Some of you parents, you remember this, how traumatic this is? I think it's more traumatic for the parents. You know, but you, you're going to give your baby this shot, and you're holding them down, or, or, or maybe they've injured themselves, and you have to take them to the doctor, and they have to be stitched up, and you've got to hold your child down. And, this, and you know, you know that that shot's going to be over in five minutes. You know it's going to be over. But does that stop you from weeping with your child? It's like you're just, your heart's going out to them, right? You're entering into their pain. And what this passage is telling us is that when we go through our pain in this fallen, broken world, that our God is a God who weeps with us. He enters into that pain. And so Jesus is overcome, and he begins to sob. This strong, amazing, powerful man, he begins to sob. And so the Jews, verse 36, said, look how he, how he loved him. They're trying to make sense of this. Man, he just really loved Lazarus. And, but some of them said, remember back in chapter 9, just a couple chapters ago, just a month or two ago in their time, that he had healed the eyes of the blind man. Remember he put the mud on his eyes and healed them? They, they all remembered that. And so some of them said in verse 37, well, could, he not have, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? And so Jesus, once more, is deeply moved, and he comes to the tomb. Now, now they've traveled to the tomb now, and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. We've talked about that. And so, so everyone's there, and now everyone's kind of assuming that he just wants to go and weep with them. He just wants to go and, and cry at the tomb. When he gets there, he says, take away the stone. Everyone's thinking, this is not a good idea. <laughs> it's been four days. I mean, the skin's coming off the bone, the swelling of the body. Looks like a bad episode of CSI. He's <laughs> like, this is not a good idea. No one wants to speak up because it's not their party. So Martha, it's her party, so she speaks up, and she gives him a little pushback. And she says, but Lord said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there, there's a bad odor. For he's been there for four days, you know, kind of as if he doesn't know. <laughs> it's, like, it's not such a good idea. This is not good. I mean, this is why we put the spices on the body, you know. This is why it's kind of like in a bathroom, you spray. You know, it's like, this, we're trying to cover up something here. You know, this is, this is not a good idea. You know, like Jesus, I don't, I don't think you're really... And then can you picture this? I mean, the crowd's there, and everyone's on tiptoe. I mean, the guy's at the back. Like, what's going to happen? I mean, this is good. You got the miracle worker in town. He's saying, roll away the stone. She's giving pushback. Who's going to win this? What's going to happen? People at the back, they're starting to pull out their handkerchiefs, put them over their nose. What's going to happen? And so Jesus turns to her in verse 40 and says, didn't I tell you that if you believed just keep trusting me. You're going to see the glory of God. You're going to see something amazing. And so Jesus wins the argument. They, they take away the stone. And Jesus looks up and he says, Father, I, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you've, you've always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. He says, Father, I, I want to pray 
it's not really for me. You and I have talked about this. You've given me the green light. I know it's going to happen. But for the people that are here, they need to know that you and I are in this together. They need to know you're backing me on this one. And so I just want to have a conversation here so that you can, they all know that. And then 43, when he said this, Jesus calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And now everyone's on tiptoes. Whoa, what's going to happen? And at the back of that tomb in the darkness, on that little bed cut out from stone, Lazarus begins to feel the life coming back into him. The brain waves begin to to work. If there's an EKG monitor, you hear the beep of the heart kicking in. The lungs begin to contract and expand as the, the breath of life comes back. The muscles and the cells begin to regenerate. At an atomic level, the atoms, the molecules begin to form. The cells begin to heal themselves. The ligaments, the tendons, skin, it all begins to come back together. And he, he senses that he's been summoned. There's a voice. A voice is calling to him. Remember, he's all, he's all tied up, hands, feet, cloth all around him, burial cloth over his face. is so dark. Not only is he in a tomb, but he's got the cloth over his face. And so he, he scoots his legs over to the side of the stone and drops them down. He stands up. He's like a mummy. He can hardly move, and he begins to shuffle forward towards the, towards the voice in the darkness. And he gets to the entrance and he he bends down low and he begins to shuffle out and the people their eyes are huge I mean here comes the mummy it's like dead man walking and he comes out and then someone loses it someone's like whoa the place goes crazy, and they're high-fiving. What did you see that? I mean, they're grabbing their cell phones, calling the newspaper. I mean, it's like crazy time. And Mary and Martha, they can't believe it. And they run to their brother, and they just carefully just take off that, that mask in front of his face. And they see those eyes, and he's alive. And they give the order, and, and the knives or the scissors are brought, and they begin to undo his hands and his feet. And they're hugging and they're kissing. And all of a sudden he looks up and he sees across the way, he sees the man whose voice called him out, his friend. And they come together. Can you imagine this bear hug? This bear hug, these two men who love one another, the one who's called them out and the one who's come back. And there's an embrace they will never forget. And the crowd, for many of them, this was the, the turning point in their lives. 
They'd heard the stories of Jesus. They'd watched him heal, but they hadn't bought in. But this was it. This was the grand finale. This is what it took. Remember the story in the Gospel of John, the opening statement, the thesis of the whole book, that there was a time and there was a place when the God who created time and space entered into creation, became a part of the human race. He revealed himself that we might live. And then John, after this opening statement, like an attorney to start the gospel, he's giving us seven case studies of these miraculous signs of Jesus to prove his point, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And so in chapter two, we had the turning of water into 150 gallons of wine. In chapter four, we watched him heal the nobleman's son who was on his deathbed from 16 miles away with the word. And chapter five, we saw him heal a man who'd been lame for 38 years. In chapter six, we taught two signs, the feeding of about 10, 15,000 people through one boy's happy meal and the walking on water. In chapter nine, we saw him open the eyes of a man born blind. But here in chapter seven is the grand finale the healing of a man who's been dead for four days, decomposing and falling apart, coming out of the tomb. It's the most, it's the grand finale in the book of John. And when many there saw it, that was it. That's all they needed. Okay, I'm in. I'm a follower of Jesus. He's got to be who he claims to be. But there were others there who rushed back to town and they told the religious leaders what had happened. Remember, it's only two miles away. And the religious leaders are freaking out because the last thing they need is another miracle from Jesus, especially a miracle like this. They know the whole city's gonna go crazy and follow him, then the Romans will come and crush the rebellion and they'll lose the power structure, they'll lose their position. And they're freaking out until one man, Caiaphas, the high priest, the one who's also where we found a couple years ago, the, the Caiaphas speaks up, he's the high priest, and he says, hey, knock it off, stop the panic, what you don't understand is we're just going to have to take him out. We're going to have to take out this one man and kill him to save the whole nation. And John, who's writing this gospel, what he says, hey, he was speaking above his pay grade. As high priest, it was a prophetic word. It's exactly what was going to happen. One man was going to die for the whole nation, and not just for the nation, but for the whole world. You see? And from that point on, now Jesus will retreat from Bethany to the desert where he'll be the next couple months. It, now it's Passover time. And at Passover time, the whole city's a buzz. Will he show up or will he not? Knowing there's a price on his head, the religious authorities have spoken out and said, if he shows up, you have to report him. We're going to arrest him. And, and the scene is set for next week where we come in the last week of Jesus' life. Amazing story. Uh, amazing miracle. Uh, seventh sign in the Gospel of John. But there's some lessons here, as is always the case in the Gospel of John. There's some life lessons for us. What does this mean for our life? And there in your note sheet, you have a section. It's called the Lazarus Lessons. And I just want to quickly look at kind of two lessons for our lives today uh, from this story. The first lesson goes like this, that Jesus knows the next life. I remember some of those... Uh, old uh, ads for, for uh, Nike or something, Bo knows or whatever, uh, back in the day. Uh, well, Jesus knows. He, Jesus knows the next life. Um, 
And he's been saying this all through the Gospel of John, that he has come from this other parallel universe, so to speak, we call heaven. That he's come from there, he's going back from there to there. The reason he came was to show us how to get there, and the way we get there is through a relationship with him. Um, like you may remember back in John chapter 3, early in the story in the, of, of John, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He meets this religious PhD, one of the top leaders of the nation, a man named Nicodemus. And here's what he said. I put it there on your note sheet. Remember what he said to Nicodemus? He said, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man, speaking of himself. So, hey, no one knows the next life except the one who's been there. I've been there. I know it. It's real. It's tangible. It's physical. The most important thing about this life, figure out how to get to that life. That's why I've come to get you there. That's why I've come to show you the way. And, and of course, what we see all through the Gospel of John is the key to being part of the next life is our relationship with Jesus in this life. And he says it again in this, this week in chapter 11. Let's look at uh, verse 25 and see what he says. Chapter 11, verse 25 Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so he who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes me will never die. And so Jesus is weighing in on this issue of what happens to us when we die. Now I want you to catch this. This is one of the most important and critical questions of the human race. What happens to us when we die? die. And, and of course, throughout time in history, there have been different theories, different opinions on this. Um, and what Jesus is, he's weighing in. He's saying, yes, there is a next life. And catch this, it's physical. There's a resurrection. You're going to have a body. It's a physical next world that's coming. Not just a spiritual world. It's a physical reality. And so Jesus is weighing in. And so it, during Jesus' time and during our time, there are people today that if you were to ask them, what happens when you die? There are people in our culture today who will say, we live in a material world, and when you die, that's it. There is no story. It's end of story. You go back into the chemical compounds of the universe, um, it's over. Game's over. It's done. There is no you that goes on. And that's not just a modern view. At Jesus' time, there were people who taught that as well. And so Jesus is weighing in and saying that is not true. That when you die, you do go on. Uh, there are other people throughout history that say that, well, when you die, what happens, you're, you're like a drop of water that goes back into the eternal consciousness of the universe, into the great ocean of eternal consciousness. For example, uh, if you were a Hindu, that's what you would believe, that, that when you die, that you are like a drop of water that goes back into the the, the uh, eternal consciousness the, of, of uh, ocean of eternal consciousness. Jesus says that's not true. When you die, you go on and you actually have a body. Um, there are those who, who believe, like uh, in, in Jesus' time, the, one of the common Greek beliefs was that when you die, you go on, but you go on just as a spirit, your spirit goes on. You don't get another body back, just your spiritual being. Jesus says, no, you're getting a body. Are you with me in this? Jesus is weighing in on one of the most important questions of our life. A couple of weeks ago, I was doing a memorial service for uh, someone who's kind of an extended family member. And uh, there was a lot of non-believers there. And so I was looking for a way to connect with them. And so I started, I told this story. It was uh, a story from an ancient Indian epic, like from, from uh, India. 
ancient Indian epic, and this, this guru, this Mahabharata, was once, he once pulled his students together. He said, what is the greatest wonder of the world? And they all took her shot at what the greatest wonder of the world was. And, and finally said, no, that's not it. So here's the greatest wonder of the world. The greatest wonder of the world is every one of us sees people dying around us all the time, but we don't believe that we will ever die. You see, this is the question of the human race. What happens when you die? And Jesus is weighing in, and he's not just weighing in. He's saying that there is a next life. It's a physical next life, and it will happen when I say it will happen. When I speak, I will call forth the entire human race, every man, woman, or child who's ever lived. I will call them forth, and they will receive a new body for the next life. I am the resurrection, and I am the life. Now, this, he had said this earlier in John. Uh, look on your note sheet there. In John chapter 5 and verse 28 and 29, here's what he said. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in the graves, catch that, all, will hear his voice, just like Lazarus heard his voice. And they will come out, just like Lazarus came out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. And so he says, there is a future. It's a real future, and it happens when I speak the word. And then what he goes on to say is that our destiny in the next life is dependent on our relationship to him in this life. In fact, what he says, if you wait till the next life to figure this out, it's too late. That you gotta, you gotta decide whether you're gonna follow him in this life. In fact, there in your notes, you look at the next verse from earlier in John. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. Notice that, has eternal life. Not will have, you have it right here, right now. And he says, and he will not be condemned. When that day comes, the end of your life, you will not be condemned if you're a follower of me now. Notice he has crossed over from death to life. It's like there's an invisible line that runs down the center of every person's life in this room. And when we decide I want to be a follower of Jesus and accept his offer of forgiveness and, and live for him, that the moment we make that decision, we step over the invisible line from death to life. And so we don't have to wait until we get there to find out what's going to happen. We enter into life here and now. Are you with me in this? Okay, so this is basic Jesus teaching. There is a next life. It's real, it's physical, it's tangible, it's more real than anything you could imagine in this life. And that what happens to you in the next life is based on your relationship with Jesus in this life. This is basic Jesus teaching. Now, what are the implications for us here? This is where I want to spend some time. What are the implications? Well, first of all, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to understand this offer that Jesus is making you. He is offering you a whole new life, both in this life and the next life, if you choose to follow him. You can know what's going to happen in the next life by giving your life to him now, but you have to make the decision in this life. Okay? That's the offer he's making, an incredible new life, an amazing future, your sins forgiven. And, and, you can, and so if you're here today and you've never made that decision, in a few minutes at the end of this service, I'm going to give you the opportunity to cross over that invisible line, life and death. Right? But for most of us here, most of us here are probably Christ's followers already. We've already crossed over that. 
So what are the implications for us? Here's what I want you to catch. The implication as you study the life and teaching of Jesus is that because the next life is real, catch this, this life is all about the next life. Are you with me in this? Because there's a next life, Jesus came to teach us how to live to make the most of this life So because it's all about the next life. As you study the life and teaching of Jesus, once this gets clear, it makes his teaching make so much sense. In fact, if you don't get this, his teaching doesn't make any sense. Like, let me, let me run, let me just give you four or five examples of his teaching. Uh, for example, one time he told his followers, he said, uh, happy are you, blessed, fortunate, lucky are you when you are persecuted because you're my followers. Now time out, we get used to this kind of language, but what he's saying, hey, when you're arrested, beaten, and killed for following me, rejoice, you're lucky. Oh, wow, I feel so lucky. You know? But he goes on, he says, why are you lucky? He says, because you're on the winning team. And this life is all about the next life. And so what can they do? They can kill you, but that's it. That's all they can do is kill you. You know? That's it. They can kill you. But then you're going to live forever in this amazing life. You see, that, that teaching only makes sense with the next life. Like if there's no next life, then it's like, I don't want to suffer for Jesus. Do you? Think of his teaching, some of his extreme teaching. He says, hey, if your right hand causes you to sin, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off, pluck it out. Why? Because it's better to go into heaven maimed than to go to hell with your full body. Now, he's making an extreme statement to make a point, but you get what he's saying. He's saying, don't let anything get in the way of your relationship with God because it's all about the next life. Think what he says, uh, what, profit does it, what profit is it to a man who gains the whole world but loses his soul? Uh, Hey, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross and die because he who dies will live. Think what he says about money. He says, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, where it's vulnerable. He says, lay up your treasure, use your finances for, for kingdom things. Lay up your treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. You see, the teaching of Jesus is all predicated on the next life. See, for him, he's been there. See, this life for Jesus is like the lobby into eternity. That's all it is. It's like going to a movie theater. Like, you don't go to a movie theater to hang out in the lobby, unless you're a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. I, the lobby is, is important, you know? You, you get your ticket, you go in, you get your popcorn, you get your Coke. I mean, it's important stuff. Don't get me wrong. But the reason you go into the lobby is to get to the, to the real thing, get to the theater, right? And so what Jesus, he's come from the next life, he's going to the next life, he's saying, time out, do you get it? This life is short, this life is broken, this life has fallen. What the most important thing about this life is getting ready for that life. And here's the implication for us as Christ followers. What this means is that your life now has meaning and purpose. And the choices you make every day, they matter because they're going to matter forever. You see, like if you're a high school student and there's no such thing as college, who cares what grades you get? But if there is a next step, it matters. You see? 
And in this life, this life, Jesus says, man, this life is important because what we do matters forever. You have the opportunity to do something great with your life. You have the opportunity to live forever. You have the opportunity to affect others forever. You have the opportunity your time, your service, your resources to do something that lasts forever. And that means your life is important. See, if there is no next life, like Paul will say later, let's eat, drink, and party. Because this is as good as it's going to get. But if there's a next life, it means your life matters, you see? And as a church, as I'm telling you, he is calling us to make a difference in these three valleys because we will be there together and we will remember this day and he's given us the capacity to do something great that will last forever. It's together we bind, bind together to encourage, to support, and to empower one another to use our gifts and our capabilities to bring people to Christ, to watch their lives change, to help the poor, to reach people. You see, he's called us to do something amazing. And that's what this teaching is about. Jesus knows the next life. Now here's the thing. It's one thing to say, I am the resurrection and the life. There's a lot of people that say things like that usually we lock them up and medicate them. Are you with me? There's a lot of people who claim to be God. There's a lot of people who think they're God. There's a lot of people who make amazing claims, but it's just ridiculous. But this is what sets Jesus apart, that he says, I am the resurrection and the life. When I speak, the universe will come back to life. I know that's a big claim, so let me give you a case study. Lazarus, <laughs> come out. And what we have in Lazarus is a preview of coming attractions. You see? He knows the next life. Now, number two. This one to be shorter, I promise. <laughs> but I love this point. I love this. Jesus always has his reasons. And there's a great lesson in here for us um, about how Jesus works. You know, it's a powerful story. It's a great story. I mean, the, let's rewind. Messenger comes to Jesus. Your friend, the one you love, he's sick, fully expecting he's going to drop everything and come or speak the word or send a letter to something to make it better. Jesus says, no, no problem, not going to die, not going to end in death. Goes back to what he's doing, you know, pass another taco, whatever. Just kind of moves on as if no big deal. The sisters get the message. They're blown away. What, he's not coming? He's not, well, he said he's not going to die. Then he dies. Have you been there? Those times in your life, you call out to God, and where is he? I think we've all experienced times in our life where you call out to God and you watch him come through, haven't we? we you go to your small group, your life group, you have some crisis, you're about to lose your job, you pray, and God provides another job. You're going through a sickness, you pray, and God heals you. Your son or daughter's going through this or that. We've all had times like that. You call out to Jesus, you know he loves you, and he comes through. 
But aren't there other times in our life where you call out to God in the midst of a crisis and he doesn't come? (laughs) Have you ever been there? He doesn't come. You can't understand it. You're calling out to him. You know he can do it. You've seen him do it before. You believe he can do it, but he's not coming. In fact, things get worse. And here's the lesson. The lesson is that when Jesus doesn't come when we call, it's not because he doesn't care. He's weeping with us. The reason he doesn't come is because he's always up to something bigger and better. He's always preparing for a greater resurrection. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes we live long enough to see this, and sometimes we don't. Like, we've all had times in our life, you go through something, a kind of crisis, and God doesn't seem to come through, and then you, you live long enough to see it work out. Like, like you lose your job and you can't believe it and you're just freaking out and then down the road you get this other better job that's better than ever and you look back and you go, oh, I see it, God. I, I get what was going on. Yeah, we see what was happening. Uh, you go through a terrible sickness and maybe God doesn't heal you but through that sickness you come to know God in a way you've never known him before and as painful and as horrible as it is, you would never trade it. You would never trade what you learned in this relationship you have with God. And, you, and so we live long enough to see it. You know, you're just, you're praying, God, I just got to marry this woman. She's just the most perfect woman. Would you please give her to me? And then she marries someone else. And then you go to your high school reunion 20 years later. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) You know, right? Right? We've been there. I have one of those stories in my life. In fact, I got two or three of those stories. So we all have times like that. You ask God to help. He doesn't help. You live long enough to see why. You see that in the Bible. Think of Joseph. All the years in prison, he lives long enough to see what God was doing, saving the whole nation. You think of uh, uh, Moses, 40 years in the wilderness after killing the Egyptian. Can't make sense of it. And then all of a sudden, burning bush, it all makes sense. You think of uh, David, uh, kills Goliath, and then on the, on the run for the next 13 years from, from King Saul, who's out to kill him. But it, he lives long enough to see it. But there's other times when you don't live long enough to see it. It's like our lives are like this huge pond And the events of our lives are like pebbles that get thrown in the middle and there's a ripple effect that goes out over time, all time and eternity. Like we're all interconnected. And sometimes we don't live long enough to see those ripples and why. Sometimes we don't have the perspective to be able to see all the whys. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the great faith chapter. It's all these stories of how people trusted God in the the Bible and how he came through for them. But about halfway through, the author just wisely said, but it wasn't always like this. Sometimes they died never receiving the promise. And he says they had to wait for the next life to see it. And here's the lesson for us is that when you call out to Jesus and he doesn't come, never make the mistake, it's because he doesn't love you. We saw it today, he did love Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he loved them very much. That when when God doesn't come in your life, it's not because he doesn't love you, he's weeping with you in the midst of your pain, it's because he's always setting up a greater resurrection. 
Sometimes we'll see it play out in this life. Sometimes we see it play out in the next life. But today we see it in the story that when Jesus doesn't come, he always has his reasons. Let's pray. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, um, I want to talk to those of you who have not yet given your life to Jesus. And if you're here today and God's really speaking to you, you can sense it. Your heart's probably beating faster. It's like there's something happening. You know that you need what I'm talking about. You know you need him. You may not understand it all. You may not have all figured it out, but you know that God is here. God's in this place. You know he's calling you, and you know you want Jesus. You want to know God. You want to be forgiven. You want this new relationship, and you want to be in the next life with him. And if that's where you are, I'm gonna pray a very simple prayer right now. I'm gonna invite you to pray along with me in your brain or in your heart, and and God will hear you, and you will cross over that invisible line between life and death today just by believing in Jesus And so I'm gonna pray right now. Just pray along with me quietly. Dear Jesus, I ask you into into my life. I, I pray you forgive me for all my rebellion against you and for not believing you in the past. But today I wanna ask you to come in and to rescue me and to forgive me and to give me a new life, to send your spirit into my life, to teach me how to follow you and to save a spot in the next life for me. Our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed. If you just prayed that prayer, uh, I want to welcome you to the kingdom. And I, I want to ask you to do, me, do a favor. In a few minutes, we'll be collecting our offering and our registration cards. And if you prayed that prayer, would you do me a favor and, and simply write on your card, I asked Jesus into my life today, or I prayed the prayer, something like that. We'll know what you mean. And then this week, I'll send you a letter with some suggestions of your next steps, first steps in your relationship with Jesus. And also, one of the first steps, if you're serious about following Jesus, the very first step is to get baptized. And uh, this is the way you show that you want to follow him. And so we do that every month or two here at Rocky Peak on a weekend service. And so we'll talk with you about that. And I'll send you a CD um, about baptism so you can understand what that's about. And then we will set up a time in the next month or so for you to be baptized here. Now for all of us, I think the question for us as Christ's followers is are we living for the next life? And uh, hopefully today it's a reminder that this life is about the next life and that our choices matter. What we do with our time, what we do with our relationships, what we do with our money, what we do with um, our heart. These things matter. They matter. Our lives are incredibly important. In this short time we have here, we have the opportunity to make a difference. And so are we living for him are we following him? Are we making him our top love, our top priority? And you don't want to miss out on what he's got planned for you in the next life by missing these opportunities that we'll only have in this life. The next life will be amazing, but we will not have the same opportunities we have in this life to make a difference forever. And so is there an area today you need to, to give to him or to refocus what's really important in life. Or we pray that you'd hear these prayers of our heart. Make us a church that's that's, uh, all about the next life and therefore the most passionate people in Los Angeles about this life. Because this life is meaning because of the next life. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.